together. If you have a Bible, you might like to turn to Luke chapter 8, because we're going to be there this morning. Just by way of introduction, I want to say thank you to Ian Larkin, but he's obviously not here this morning, is he, Nicky? No, he's away. He's away, okay. Well, um, I want to thank Ian, because last week he did a great job of linking the sermon to vision and um, to the title of the, the series, which is Outside In and Upside Down. And I was sitting there last week, having already written this, because I knew I was going to be away, thinking, oh dear, I haven't done a very good job of that for next week. Um, and the whole idea behind this series was to get us to think out. This one is slightly different. Um, this is f- mainly for you, but I hope that it gives you something that you can... Um, take out with you. hope that makes sense by the end of it. If it doesn't, forget I ever said it. <laughs> I recently went to a party to celebrate the birthday of a friend. It was a significant birthday. So there were pictures of my friend at different stages of his life hanging all around the room. And the challenge, it turned out, was to find him in every picture. <laughs> and here's the thing. He was in every picture. All we had to do was find him. And what we all discovered is that finding Ronnie was not as easy as you would have thought. But he was there in every picture. He was always there. So see if you can find Ronnie, who's sitting right there, so we all know what he looks like. Where's Ronnie? Now, we've just done stuff at college about cultural context and all the rest of it. What I discovered is they all look exactly the same, don't they? Now, I discovered that the secret was always look for the teacher and you will find Ronnie. So if you look to the right-hand side of the teacher, that's you, isn't it, Ronnie? Yes, well done. Uh, Thank you, Ronnie, for allowing me to do that this morning. Uh, There's a guy who became very famous because everyone is looking for him. His name... Is Wally. In 1986, English illustrator Mark Hanford was asked to create a character to be the focus of his illustrations of crowds. In that process, Wally was born with his distinctive red and white clothing. The idea of the pictures was simple. There's a crowd. Wally's in the crowd. All you have to do is find Wally. Where's Wally books have become a phenomenal success. Hands up if you've got a Where's Wally book. Yeah, there you go. Hands down, saddos. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Children love them. Adults love them. Senior folks love them. People of all ages will sit for hours with a Where's Wally book looking for him. Maybe you do exactly that. For a bit of fun, can you find... You're never going to do this. They're too small. I know that. But humor me. Go with me. Can you find Wally in this picture? So what I might ask Mark to do is to stick that on at the end of the service. And if it's bugging you now, because you can't quite see Wally, you can come and sit here until the second service until you find him. (laughs) But for the purposes of the rest of the sermon, Mark, would you turn that off now so they're focusing on me? (laughs) Lovely, thank you. Here's how a Where's Wally book works. On the first page, Wally is relatively easy to find. But the further you go through the pages, the harder he becomes to find. By the end of the book, he is not impossible to find, but he is very, very difficult to find. But if you look 
you will find him because he is always there on every page. Where's Wally reminds me of a much bigger and a much better story. I'm wondering if you've ever asked this question, maybe not in these words, but in essence, the same question. Where is God? My best guess is that we all, at some point in our lives, have asked that question. Maybe we've asked it this way. God, where are you now? Probably it's been an anguished cry of the heart. God, I don't understand why when I need you the most, you are nowhere to be found. Perhaps it's been in the form of an unanswered prayer. You have poured out your heart to God and he is nowhere to be seen. Friends, you are not alone. In fact, I had a conversation with someone on our course this week and I'm toying with the idea of actually taking the plunge and emailing the text of this sermon to them and saying, did you find any of that helpful? Because I had exactly this conversation with them. Joseph, in prison in Egypt, interprets a cupbearer's dream and asks the cupbearer to remember him to the king. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And Joseph remained in prison for two long years. After defeating the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, Elijah runs away, afraid of his life. He cries out to God with these words, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Psalms record the anguished cry of the heart. Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Psalm 22, words spoken by Jesus himself on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out day and night, but you do not answer. By night, I find no rest. Job, by chapter 3, says these words. May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said a boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm me. Because he cannot find God. God is nowhere to be found. Friends, when it is hard to find God, you stand with many, many followers who have gone before you. And my guess is that right now, in these moments, you are sitting shoulder to shoulder with those who have experienced times or maybe right now are in the middle of a time when God is hard to find. And you stand shoulder to shoulder 
with those who were closest to Jesus when he walked this earth. The disciples. Actually, the disciples found it very difficult to see Jesus, even when he was with them. If we follow the story as Luke describes it so far, here's roughly how it goes. In the first couple of chapters, Jesus' birth is promised and then takes place. Jesus is presented in the temple as a baby. Then we skip on to Jesus' baptism and is being tempted by Satan. Jesus then begins his ministry. He claims in the synagogue in Nazareth to be the one Isaiah talks about. The one who is anointed by God to teach and heal and bring freedom. He gets thrown out of town for that. Then he teaches and casts out a demon from a man in the synagogue. He heals Simon's mother and many others. And in chapter 5, as we saw a few weeks ago, he gathers some of his disciples. At that point, my conviction is this. They must already have had some idea of who he was, either having heard about Jesus or seen some of the things that he did. They are then with him when he heals a man of leprosy. They are with him when he tells a paralyzed man to pick up his mat and go home. They are with him when he invites Levi, we know him as Matthew, to join the team. The tax collector. Matthew the tax collector. Come and join my team. They are with him when he teaches people. They, they are with him when he cures... Sorry, when he challenges, time and time again, the Pharisees. They are listening when he teaches that the best way to live, in fact, is to love your enemies. They are part of the crowd when he speaks with great wisdom about not judging and building your life on something that has eternal value. They witness the faith of a centurion and the miracle that then results. They are amazed when he helps a widow whose son had died. Everything that represents the unclean, and Jesus makes it clean again. They are witnesses at the party when Jesus welcomes a woman nobody else cares about. And then one day, after a long day's work, they get in a boat with Jesus to cross the lake. And in these moments, despite everything they have already witnessed... Despite everything they have come to know, despite all they have come to believe, they can't find God. Luke chapter 8, beginning to read at verse 22. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake, so the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. His disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up, rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked the disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Now, as I read this story, I find myself wondering about this question. How many times... Have these disciples been on this lake in a storm before? Now, I don't know the answer for sure, but my best guess is, because a lot of them were fishermen, many times. And yet their reaction suggests this must have been a bad storm. So bad, in fact, that they feared for their lives. These guys, who knew about storms, were very afraid. And why are they so afraid? 
Because in truth, they know and understand perfectly that they are not in control of what is happening, that they are in fact helpless. I'm wondering how many times you may have faced a situation, or you may be in one now, where you feel out of control and utterly helpless. Perhaps that's true in one area of life or another now. There are many storms in life, aren't there? The nature of storms is that they are mostly unexpected. They mostly involve circumstances beyond our control. They often leave us feeling helpless. And God, well... Sometimes it's as if he's asleep in the boat. And what makes it worse is that was his idea that we got into this particular boat in the first place. Verse 22, one day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. The truth is that following Jesus doesn't mean we don't get to face the storms of life. What I find both staggering and encouraging in equal measure is that even after all they had experienced of Jesus up to this moment, the disciples didn't seem to be able to find God in the storm. What they found was Jesus asleep. And they thought he didn't know and he didn't care what happened to them. Ever been there? Maybe you're there right now in these moments. Here in this story is a deep and profound truth. God is closer than you think. The disciples can see Jesus. They can see that he is asleep in the boat. But they can't find God. And they can't find him because they have not fully grasped who it is who is really in the boat with them. And they can't find him because they don't fully trust him to be who he says he is. So how about you, friends? What the disciples had not grasped is that the storm is absolutely no threat whatsoever to Jesus. That's why he can sleep. When he wakes, he rebukes the wind and the waves, and the storm subsides. And here's a little connection for you. We only read in Revelation about a glassy sea. That's a wonderful picture of God being in control of everything. 
The storm in the Bible, waves and storms, the picture of chaos. So the chaos rages all around them, but God is in control of the chaos. When God steps in, there is calm. So when you sing that verse and go with the gla- well, around the glassy sea, and you nudge the person next to you, and you giggle, and you go, what on earth is that all about? Now you know. It's deeply and profoundly true. In that extraordinary act, Jesus shows his fearful disciples that in truth, with him in the boat, they have absolutely nothing to be afraid of. Sometimes, friends, it seems even with everything we know and have experienced of God, we struggle desperately to find God in the storm. There are times when God appears to be asleep and he doesn't care that we are going to be overwhelmed and that we are going to drown. And the storms which can sometimes come quickly, unexpectedly and violently appear as a huge threat to us. And we find ourselves asking, where is God? Where's Wally books? Have Wally on every page. But as you go through the book, he gets harder and harder to find because the picture becomes more complex, have more in them, and Wally becomes smaller. In fact, in the first book that was ever published, Wally was 0.99 centimetres squared. By the seventh book, he was between 0.2 and 0.17 centimetres squared, which makes him hard to find. But the truth about Wally is that Wally is on every page, always, always. In the much bigger and the much better story, God is on every page of our lives, always. Sometimes he's big and we are easily able to find him. And friends, when that's your experience, rejoice in the presence of God. But sometimes God is small and very hard to find. But God is always present on every page of our lives. And that means he is present in the storm. The truth is that God is closer than you think. Even when he appears to be asleep in the storm. When Jesus was teaching on a mountainside one day, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, he said right in the middle of that talk, don't worry. I think what he was saying goes something like this. The kingdom of the heavens is a very different kind of a kingdom. And when you see the world through the kingdom of the heavens, you see the world the way I and my father see the world. And when you see the world the way my father and I see it, you will realize that you actually have nothing to worry about. When you see the world the way my father and I see the world, you will know that the universe is a perfectly safe place to be. 
And when I appear to be asleep in the storm, when you face circumstances that you feel are going to overwhelm you, when you think that I have forgotten you and that I don't care about you, when you think and feel that you are going to drown and the waters will sweep over you, I want to remind you that I love you more than you will ever know. I want to remind you that I care for you always. I want to remind you that though they are real to you, the storms of life you face are not a threat to me and you are held by me and you are safe. The choice the disciples faced is, friends, I think the same one that we face. Who will we choose to trust? Will we choose to trust our own strength and ability and understanding? Or will we choose to trust in God, the king of the universe who can calm the storm? The God who is on every page of our lives. The God who is with us in the boat. The God who fears no threat from the storm. The God who says, let's go to the other side together. The God who is closer than you think. You may know this story and we will sing these words in a moment. Horatio Spafford was born in New York the 20th of October 1828. But it was in Chicago that he became well known for his clear uh, clear Christian testimony. He and his wife Anna were active in their church and their home was always open to visitors. They counted the world famous evangelist Dwight Moody among their friends. They were blessed with five children and considerable wealth. Horatio was a lawyer and owned a great deal of property in his home city. Not unlike Job in the Old Testament of the Bible, tragedy came in great measure to this happy home. When four years old, their son, Horatio Jr., died suddenly of scarlet fever. Then one year later, in October 1871, a massive fire swept through downtown Chicago, devastating the city, including many properties owned by Horatio. That day, almost 300 people lost their lives and around 100,000 were made homeless. Despite their own substantial financial loss, the Spaffords sought to demonstrate the love of Christ by assisting those who were grief-stricken and in great need. Two years later, in 1873, Spafford decided his family should take a holiday in England, knowing that his friend, the evangelist D.L. Moody, would be preaching there in the autumn. Horatio was delayed because of business, so he sent his family ahead, his wife and their four remaining children, all daughters, 11-year-old Anna, 9-year-old Margaret Lee, 5-year-old Elizabeth, and 2-year-old Tanetta. On the 22nd of November 1873, while crossing the Atlantic on a steamship, Ville de Havre, their vessel was struck by an iron sailing ship. 226 people lost their lives as the Ville de Havre sank within only minutes. All four of Horatio Spafford's daughters perished. But remarkably, Anna Spafford survived the tragedy. Those rescued, including Anna, who was found unconscious floating on a plank of wood, subsequently arrived in Cardiff, South Wales. Upon their arrival, 
Anna immediately sent a telegram to her husband which included these words, saved alone. Receiving Anna's message, he set off at once to be reunited with his wife. One particular day during the voyage, the captain summoned him to the bridge of the vessel. Pointing him to his chart, he explained that when they were passing over the very spot where the Valdehaf sank, where his daughters had died, it is said that Spafford returned to his cabin and wrote the hymn, It is well with my soul. The first line of which is, When peace like a river attendeth my way. Horatio's faith in God never faltered. He wrote to his half, Anna's half-sister on Thursday last, we passed over the spot she went down in mid-ocean, the water's three miles deep. But I do not think of my dear ones there. They are safe, dear lambs. It is well. It is well. It is well with my soul.